0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. So if you're a young person here this morning, uh, let's say you're 18, well, first of all, congratulations. Australia considers you to be a real adult now. And let's say you, you get a job and you start working, and at your workplace, uh, bunch of colleagues of yours like to go out for coffee and there's a cafe down the road and they go out you know twice a day and because and you think to yourself well you know that's going to add up Costs about $10 a day to go and do that so I'm going to just go back to the office and use the free coffee machine there and so what you end up doing is deciding that you will not go and spend the money, but you will instead save the money and save it into your superannuation account. And so for the next 50 years, you just put in $10 a day. It doesn't seem like much. But at $10 a day for the next 50 years, compounding at 9% a year, that will amount to $3.25 million. That is a lot to miss out on. Have a look at the start of chapter 6, what Jesus says there. So in your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you cash out, you'll miss out. Right? So Jesus is saying to us that there is this danger when it comes to practicing the spiritual disciplines, that we might get fixated on some short-term, nearsighted reward and miss out on the ultimate reward from the Father. In chapter 6, this section that we're in, Jesus is giving a section of teaching on the three major spiritual disciplines that the Jews would have practiced in that time. So you'll see from uh, verses 1 through to 18, Jesus teaches on giving, praying, and fasting. And his big point is that you can engage in these things and do them in the wrong way. And if you do, you will miss out on being rewarded By your Father who is in heaven. So today's focus, we're going to spend time thinking about what he has to say when it comes to prayer. And this, as you'll notice there in in your Bible, if you've got an ESV translation, it comes uh, under the heading, the Lord's Prayer, and it comes just before the section on the Lord's Prayer. So if the Lord's Prayer is, is what we should pray, then the section just before that is how we should pray. The first thing we notice, though, is, as you would have heard in the reading, there's a repeated phrase. That repeated phrase is at the start of each of the various verses there. Verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, verse 6, he says, But when you pray, verse 7, he says, And when you pray, Jesus assumes that, as his disciples, we will pray. So with that in mind, the flip side of that is that if we find in ourselves that we just do not pray at all, then we are probably not Jesus' disciples. So, with that in mind, if someone came up to you and asked you as a Christian, how is your prayer life going? My assumption is that that would probably make you feel somewhat uncomfortable, a little bit awkward, almost as though someone had come up to you and said, how's your superannuation balance looking? See, that question, the reason that it makes us feel uncomfortable and awkward is we have this sense in ourselves, I think, that our prayer lives are not all that they could be or should be. We feel as though we probably don't pray enough or pray in the right way. Well, in this text, what we get is not the command to pray, but instruction on how we should pray. And structurally speaking, as you look at the passage, the way it all fits together is Jesus is going to tell us two things not to do and one thing sandwiched in between those two things that we should do. So that's pretty much going to be the outline of the sermon is what Jesus has to, has to say. And the first thing that Jesus has to say with regards to how we pray is this. Point number one, don't pray like a hypocrite don't pray like like a hypocrite. So that is to say that it is possible to pray like a hypocrite. And here we are in this public place and gathered together and you know part of that is we've come along to hear a sermon, hear bible readings, sing together, but one of the express purposes of our gathering together as the people of God is to pray. Now, as we look at the text, it says this in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. My assumption is that no one here wants to be more like a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. A hypocrite is someone who is two-faced. They have this motivation, and the text tells us what it is. So for their, their motivation to pray is this. Look at the second half of verse 5. It says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. So this hypocritical person is tapped on the shoulder, they're invited to to pray in synagogue, and they say yes, they're excited, they like to pray in synagogue. It's a chance for them to show off. It's a chance for them to show off their spiritual prowess, but you notice there how in the text how they, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't, it, they go out and they go out onto the street corners, into the public, and they pray loudly and, and proudly and they put on this great performance when it comes to prayer. They put on this great performance for their audience and their audience rewards them. That's the assumption. They probably get some pats on the back and told that that was a really wonderful prayer and that was awesome and great job and all of this sort of thing and what they are doing is they are just lapping it up they're really enjoying all of that and jesus points out that they cash out too early at the end of the verse he says truly i say to you they have received their reward and I think this is one of those moments where we're reading the Bible and what we're feeling is that the Bible's actually reading us. That's what the Bible does, that Jesus understands the human condition, doesn't he? It's a problem in every culture, it's not just Christianity or Judaism of the time. It is deeply ingrained within the human condition that we want to put on spiritual performances in order to impress other people. We love to be thought of as deep. We love to be thought of as spiritual. We'll often hear people say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not religious, but, you know, I'm spiritual, right? So we want to be seen in a particular way. And what that is, is that is the heart of pride. It's when we're wanting to seek not God's glory, but our own. And so we pray in this way, with words of pomp and elegance and eloquence. The problem is, though, is that God is not impressed. So notice there is that Jesus says we will just get human applause. And that's it. It's a lot to miss out on. So to pray, whether it be in church or in in synagogue at that time is a privilege. But with the privilege comes the warning, don't let it get to your head. So I think that this principle that Jesus is explaining and unpacking for us, you can think of ways that it applies, of course, to the upfront corporate prayer, but it's also when we're around the dinner table and we're praying before a meal. It's when we're in Bible study, Praying with one another, catching up with one another one-to-one, women's groups, men's groups, even family devotions, the point of the text, don't show off. It's not about you. Now, I wonder if, as you hear this, it tempts you to turn on the spiritual searchlight onto other people. I think about all those other people who you know, pray in fancy or wordy ways and think, well, they're clearly showing off. They're probably a little bit hypocritical, aren't they? In the way you can, Yeah, I can just hear it. I can hear it in the way that they pray. But the text is actually encouraging us not to do that, but to do the opposite, to turn the spiritual searchlight onto our own hearts. Why? Well, we can't actually judge the heart because you notice what Jesus is pointing out here is that it's a problem of motivation so it's a, it's a sin of the heart it's the sin of hypocrisy gets to our motivations the motivation there is to be seen by others so really you can't tell when you look at someone else why they pray in a particular way or what's going on inside their heart but there is that call to examine your own heart. And as you do, you may think of a number of different spiritual conditions that might arise in your own heart. You know, you may have this feeling like, you know, when it's time to pray, or this is cool. This is an opportunity for me to get some respect, to garner a bit of a reputation as someone who is thought of as spiritual that's perhaps how the issue shows up for you or for others of us. We may worry that, well, maybe we don't have the right words. And so when we're praying in the group, we might refrain because we don't want to be heard to be you know, saying the wrong thing. So we avoid it altogether. But perhaps for many of us, the issue shows up differently when we're around non-Christians. Because then we get nervous and we want to, you know, we'd rather disappear under a rock than be heard to be praying. The problem in each of these scenarios and the problem that's really going on with our heart condition at that point is that we are thinking of the wrong audience. We are most mindful of being seen by others and we're not thinking about how God sees us. I wonder if you've ever felt this. I wonder if you've ever experienced that tension in your own soul. Well, what should we do? Because when you look at the Bible, the solution to this issue that goes on in our hearts when we involve ourselves in group prayer or public prayer, it is not that we would stop praying with each other. If you look at the book of Acts, this is exemplified. The early church, it talks about it in these ways, what was going on. It said, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the early church prayed together. Daniel chapter 6. A law is made in Persia. That no one from now on is allowed to pray to anyone but King Darius. And if you know the story, the consequence would be to be thrown in the lion's den. And what does Daniel do? Well, in chapter 6, verse 10, it says, He got down on his knees three times and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So his private prayer life in that circumstance, he actually made sure that it remained public. In the New Testament, if you flip to the book of 1 Timothy with me, chapter 2, let's look at this. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor of a church. He says to Timothy, about, this is about how he's to lead his church, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Come now down to verse 8. In that same chapter, Paul continues, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So in the public ministry of the Word, clearly there is this expectation that prayer will accompany it. And so we spend time together when we gather in prayer. The Christian life involves praying together. Now for me, I must confess that as I've been studying this text in the book of Matthew, it's very convicting as someone who preaches and Praise in public. It's, it helps me to see that there is this great danger to my own soul. And maybe it's the same for you. So how can we participate in praying with one another and navigate the tension in our soul? How can we pray with one another and have a clear conscience? What should we do when we pray? I hope you'll find this helpful, but I've got three helps for hypocrites, for people who may struggle with this kind of thing, which I think to some degree is all of us. So, in a, in a, And I think you could apply this to any situation of group prayer, whether that be up the front ministry, praying with your family, one-to-ones, giving thanks before a meal, Bible study, whatever it might be, these are three helps for hypocrites. The first is to remind yourself who you serve ultimately who you serve ultimately. So, so pray before you pray. Pray for help to pray. Pray that God would help you to fear him more than man. Pray to God, unite my heart that I might fear your name. At times if I've you know, prayed up the front with notes, I've like written on top, pray to God, and circled it just to remind myself what it's all about. Because it's easy to forget, isn't it? But when you pray with others, be mindful of the fact that we are coming before the sovereign Lord of the universe. So don't be so focused on yourself and having the the right words come out of your mouths. Focus most, first and foremost, on who it is we are praying to. On coming before the throne of grace of the most powerful God. That is what we are doing in prayer together. The second thing is to remind yourself when you are praying in a group that you are serving others. So it's not as though we are just praying to God, this this vertical aspect, without helping one another, serving one another, without the horizontal aspect. When we're praying together, there's a vertical and a horizontal aspect going on. So we are, we, we're not praying to the exclusion of other people. So we should be mindful of them. That should probably impact the, the, the words that we use, the length that we choose. We should be aiming to bless rather than to impress. That should be our goal. The third is to cultivate a life of private prayer. So this will require us getting away, confessing the ways that we have struggled with this sin, coming to God, thinking about the gospel and how we have sinned against the Lord in this particular way and applying the gospel of grace to our hearts and praying that the Lord would help us to walk in repentance and faith and pray with a clear conscience when we pray with other people. And if you think that last one is helpful, well, it's exactly what Jesus says. Second point of the sermon, pray like a Christian. Point two, pray like a Christian. Verse six. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. No one knew the joy of being alone with God the Father and having communion with Him like the Son. Think about it. From eternity past, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelt in perfect communion within the Trinity, within the Godhead. And it was perfect. They existed in perfect love with one another. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, came to earth, took upon human flesh, upon himself, and when he did this, the communion that he had with the Father kept on going. So you notice as you read through the Gospels how often Jesus would withdraw from crowds, withdraw from other people. In Luke chapter two, we see it right from when he is a young boy. In some sense, He's, his parents are looking for him everywhere, and he and they find him. And and, and and he says to them, "Why were you searching for me?" He asked. "Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house?" Before he chose the twelve disciples, Luke chapter six verse twelve tells us, "In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night." He continued in prayer to God. After Jesus hears that John the Baptist is killed, he does the same thing. He withdraws in prayer to spend time alone with the Father. And of course, we see this culminating when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying, agonizing before the Father, take this cup from me. As he agonizes with what is about to take place. No one had a relationship with God the Father like God the Son. And to connect, he withdrew and in- intentionally spent time with the Father and spoke to him in prayer. So prayer is not about ticking a box. I woke up this morning and I spoke to my family, not, not because I was wanting to tick off the first thing I wanted to do, uh, you know, on my to-do list, we have a relationship. And it's the same with Jesus, and it ought to be the same with us. We don't think of our intimate relationships in the way of just ticking a box. Prayer is about communing with a person. In particular, prayer is the way in which we commune with the triune God. Three persons. We commune with the Father in the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus Himself, as He promises this reward, we could see that no one knew what this reward was like and how great it was like He did. And what a blessing, then, it is that He calls us to participate in this, to lock ourselves away and enjoy this reward of communing with the Father. You see, that it is a discipline, though don't you? Because it, it, what the text is saying, Jesus is he's instructing us, no, go into your room and shut the door. There's some intentionality that goes with that. And it's even harder for us in the 21st century, isn't it? Because Wi-Fi goes straight through doors. We we'll probably need to turn our phones off as well and get away from distraction and carve out time to be alone with the Father. The reason that Jesus is telling us to do this, in particular in the text, is that it gets us away from the temptation to perform in front of others. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says that we need to go to a place where, quote, no mortal eye sees us and where we can pour out our hearts with the feeling that no one is looking at us but God. So as you hold these two verses together, verse 5 and 6, you see a contrast between praying in public for that short-term reward against the, uh, contrasted against praying in private for the reward that comes from God the Father. And with that contrast, there comes for us a test. How does our prayer in public around other people compare with our prayers in private. I love the way that Kevin DeYoung illustrates this. He talks about our prayer lives, you know, they ought to be like an iceberg. You've got the tip of the iceberg that you can see, and that is our public prayer. But underneath the surface, there is this depth and substance to our prayer life going on. And he says that, It should be more like the iceberg than iceberg lettuce, which is just kind of floating along on the surface. So the question then is, are our public prayers eloquent and our private prayers desolate? Because the answer to that will reveal our hypocrisy. Now, this obviously presents a very confronting reality, for us, that we clearly come, many of us, woefully short of what this text is calling us to. So, the message could be you know, this message of guilt, and you know, you need to pray more, and you need to be, you know, more like Jesus, and carve out the, the, you know, the quiet time and work harder. But you notice what Jesus does is so much deeper than that. So, yes, cultivate the discipline. Here's why. There is this reward that is available to us, this communion with the Father that is available to us. And that is really what will long-term sustain our life of prayer, is knowing that we can come to God the Father and get this reward. But realize this, that we have no place to commune with the Father. See, you and I have sinned against God. We've offended God, and we have no merit of our own in order to enter into the presence of God, to commune with him. Like, that is not a privilege we deserve. What we deserve is to be cast out, to be cast into hell, to be under the wrath of God and it's not as though we can say well oh man i'm going to fix this thing with you know determination and grit no we can't just unhypocrite our own hearts it is so ingrained into our nature to want to press impress other people when it comes to using even this most sacred duty of prayer we're going to need a different solution And the solution that is provided to us in the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ, where He came to earth. The beloved Son of God came to do what? To die, to live this perfect life and then die as a substitute for every hypocrite, for every sinner, He died in the place of sinners to make them righteous before God so that we could enter into the presence of God. And he's united himself to us in his death, meaning that we have died to sin. And if that's true, the Bible says that he unites us to himself himself in the resurrection, in the new life, so that we can walk in faithfulness and obedience to Christ and enjoy communion with the Father. So the way, though, that this deals with our hypocrisy is that when we consider the cross, we see on display all of our rottenness. All of the horror that Christ went through in order to pay for our sins. And this is the answer to our spiritual pride. Because look at how unworthy we are. Look at how horrible we are. Look at what Jesus went through to make us a child of God. And so we spend time here and we realize that we are unimpressive. We don't want accolades after that, do we? But we also see, on the other hand, that we are deeply loved. What a price has been paid for us on the cross by Jesus for all of our sin. He paid with his own blood in order to unite himself to us. So think of a, think of a wedding. You have the groom and the bride, and the groom covenants himself to the bride And when he does that, all of his possessions, everything that he has becomes hers and vice versa. Now Jesus has covenanted himself to his bride and his bride is the church and the church is us. And so what happens when Jesus covenants himself to you, Jesus' reward becomes yours. Isn't that wonderful? If you are united to Christ, think of what I was just talking about before, about the love that God the Father has for the Son. And if you are in the Son, then that is the same love that God the Father has for you. This is the reality that we need to hear as hypocrites. If there is a greater reward on offer through the son when we come to the father so when jesus cried out on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me we can see that why he did that he did that so that we could be in communion with god and enjoy something of what the father and the son had point number three of the sermon is to not pray like a pagan. So point three, don't pray like a pagan. So we'll look at verse seven and eight. Verse seven says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I remember when I was at university, I had a friend who was very committed to prayer. They would go off multiple times a day throughout the day. And I remember thinking, wow, that's impressive. That's pretty hardcore discipline. My friend was a Muslim. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then what you're seeing here in the text And what the message of Christianity teaches us is that there is no amount of prayers or no amount of discipline that forms the basis for us being right with God. So it is purely based on the merits of Christ that we can come to him in prayer. And the fact that we even can pray to God at all is on the basis that Jesus has brought us into right relationship with God. And this is This is partly what verse 7 and 8 is getting at. It's talking about our relationship to God as He is our Father. Now, what the text is prohibiting us from doing then is heaping up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. So the the word there in the original language is batalogeo. So if you say that word a hundred times really, really fast you'll get the sense of what the word means. Because what the word means is it means to babble. It's where we derive the, the word to babble. Like This person's a babbler. That's where the word comes from. And in the ancient world, the pagans would practice... They would, they would have these cultic practices where they would engage in incantations and repetitive chants over and over and over again in order to engage with the spiritual realm, to please their gods. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to pray like that. You don't need fluff and jibber-jabber in order to get through to God. So we saw this in the text that we read this morning in that story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the contrast between them. So you noticed, didn't you, how the, the prophets of Baal, they would, they would carry on. It says they raved on all day. They got to the point where they were even cutting themselves and yelling and babbling. Verse 29 of that passage says no one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Because no one was there. So no amount of words and this was able to help them get through to their God because their God did not exist. Now contrast that with Elijah, God's prophet. He called upon the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's translated there in in, in the passage as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And what happened? (laughs) fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice in front of everyone and the people worshipped the true God. And there's other examples in the Old Testament. You think of the, the, the people in Jeremiah's day who were, they, they were what they would do is they, they would go and hide in the temple from the judgment that was coming their way and they would, they would heap up this phrase, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This the, is the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah comes to them and says, Don't hope in these vain words. Because these vain words would not save them. They were empty. And Jesus is saying, Do not heap up empty phrases. Now I think that this is a warning for us today, because in, the Christian, in, in Christian circles, you may have noticed, but there can be a lot of fluff in prayer. Now, amongst perhaps less careful churches, less thoughtful churches, people may uh, ex- express this by praying in a way that they kind of just meander around and fall in these ditches and end up saying, you know, accidentally heretical things like, Father, we just we thank you for dying on the cross and you're thinking, that, wait, that didn't happen. Or, or perhaps it, it's like things that we may see in certain corners of the charismatic movement where you see hysterical laughter and these phrases which are repeated over and over again in these droning repetitions operating under a false guise of Christianity in order to summon in the presence of God. That's a tragedy. And then we have other examples where people will pray and try and like fit God's name into the sentence as many times as they can and think that's what makes their prayer you know, more spiritual. You know, Father God, we just, God, Lord, we just pray that you, Lord, would come and be with us, God. And you know, they're just saying it over and over again. And it makes you think of the third commandment. And the third commandment, the sense of what it is teaching, the third commandment is to not use the Lord's name in vain, but the sense of it is to not lift up the name of God with emptiness. We need to be careful. Because it is pagan to babble on, pun intended. So it's easy, of course, to just take aim at people, you know, that might be a bit different to us, who are less thoughtful, less biblical, And we may think to ourselves, well, you know, we pray like more biblical prayers. So like, you know, we we pray the Bible. That's a good thing. So our, our prayers are rich theologically and they have this good structure and truth to what we pray. We're thinking God's thoughts after him and that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. We want to have our prayers be led by the scriptures but at the same time, we want our hearts engaged with the truths that they contain. It shouldn't seem as though you know, we're lifting up these words with emptiness. It shouldn't be for us like, you know, you call up the electricity company or the internet provider and maybe you're changing company to them. And so they've got to read out the T's and C's and it's like, okay. So they just and they're thinking, oh, I've got to do this. So they, they just rattle it off and tick the box. Done, let's move on. Our prayers should not be like that. Our hearts should be engaged with what we are praying. So our prayers should be biblical. Our prayers should be triune. Our prayers should be theological direct. And as Jesus is teaching here succinct my dad pointed out the irony uh, of this yesterday he's like so you're going to preach an hour sermon on you know praying short prayers the irony was not lost on me but as far as length goes here what the text is actually there's no prescription on length you know like sermons there's no prescription here on length but the point is this do not heap up empty words Because God is not listening to you because you use a lot of words. He doesn't hear you for your many words. That's a Gentile way of thinking. C.S. Spurgeon comments on this and he says, How greatly do they err who measure prayers by the yard? They think they have prayed so much because they have prayed so long. So it's not the Bunnings timber yard. We don't get a tape measure out and measure it by the length. Prayers are not measured by the length, but by him who searches the heart, and that is God. So that is to say that we can't judge the hearts of others, but God can. In fact, he judges our own hearts. And so if you are called to pray, or you're praying alone with God, be mindful of that. And notice that Jesus gives us permission and, in fact, instruction to be succinct. In verse 8, we see the reason. Do not be like them. Do not be like the pagans. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So God knows what we need before we even come to Him in prayer. And that is because He is the all-sovereign God. He is all-knowing. He is all seeing right to the depths of our hearts. God knows our frame. God knows every thought in our heart and in our head and every intention of our heart. So we can come to Him knowing that He cares about us. Look at Matthew chapter 7. It's probably just across the page or over to the next one in your Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, good things to those who ask him? So God is our Father and he cares most about what we need. He knows best about what we need as well. So when we are called to pray and, and, and when we are mindful of the fact that God knows what we are about to pray, even before we pray it, God knows our needs, He knows our hearts. Who is prayer really changing? Prayer is changing us. As we draw near to Him, as we commune with Him, as we enjoy this reward that is ours from the Father, as we express our dependence on Him, prayer is really changing us. So to conclude the sermon, let's think a little bit about what this might look like. Perhaps this afternoon, tomorrow morning, whatever it is you pray, you discipline yourself to pray, you read the Word, spend time with God. What might this look like? Now, this is not a binding command or anything like that suggestions that may be helpful. But the Puritans, uh, they they taught that prayer and meditation and reading the Word, all three of those things were inextricably linked together. So a quote from Thomas Manton, he says this, prayer is a a, a sort of middle duty between Word and prayer. So did I say meditation at the start of that quote? I did. Okay, good. Reading correctly. So meditation is a middle duty between word and prayer and has respect for both. The word feeds meditation and meditation feeds prayer. These duties must always go hand in hand. Meditation must follow hearing and precede prayer. To hear and not meditate is unfruitful. We may hear and hear. But it is like putting something into a bag with holes. It is rashness to pray and not to meditate. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and let out by prayer. These three duties must be ordered that one may not jostle out the other. Men are barren, dry and sapless in their prayers for, wanting, for want of exercising their selves in holy duties." So as you are reading the Word, you know, perhaps you're going through a plan, whatever you do, maybe you read through books of the Bible, I'm not sure. As you're reading, there's probably things that'll stick out to you. Don't just skip past those. Stop. Linger on them. If it helps, maybe you highlight them, maybe you write them out. I'm not sure what you do, but make sure that you are stopping and lingering and taking the time to work these truths of God into your soul. And then as you do this, as you meditate on the Word of God, as you think deeply about what the text means that you are reading, turn that into prayer. So having studied these verses, really, we're primed for the next bit, which is the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we... we we get this structure that we can use for our own prayers. Martin Luther said that, you know, we should he he advised people to to pray through the Lord's Prayer with fresh wording, using it as a guide each day. You could do that, or you could, you know, simply cycle back on the verses that we've thought about this morning. To so to do that, we're gonna close the sermon and pray together. And I want us to think about these verses that we've just read through and heard preached and to pray in light of what we have thought about. So let's pray. Our Father God, we confess that we have so often been hypocritical in our prayers. We have prayed like the hypocrites. We have loved to stand and pray in church or in public or with one another in one-to-one settings or small groups, Bible studies, in such a way to be seen by others. Lord, we, we pray that you would keep us from this sin and forgive us for this sin and help us to see that we are not performing for an audience, but we are praying to you. Lord, help us to be mindful of the cross Help us to pour contempt on all of our pride as we pray. And to be mindful of what Jesus did for us to make us right with you, that we might be in communion with you. Help us, Lord, to discipline ourselves, to pray, to go into our room and shut the door and pray to you and receive the reward that comes from you, our Father. And Lord, when we pray, we pray that we would not be like the Gentiles, that we would not heap up empty phrases. Lord, keep us from even using biblical language in an empty way, but help us to engage with the truth of your word and be moved by it and be changed by it. And Father, we thank you that you know what we need before we even ask it. You know every thought that is on our heart and you know best what your children need most. So we pray that you would help us and teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.